Amen. Amen. Take a seat. Take a seat. Last week, we began our series on a church after God's own heart. And we went through the parable of the soils. We saw that a church after God's own heart is a church that is soft and receptive to God's word. Soft and receptive to God's word. Reminder, we're going through this series in the fall because we want to get God's heart for our church. We want to care for what God cares for. And so we are picking passages that communicates the heart, the character of who God is. We're doing this because we sense going into our third year that this is a time of consecration. It's a time that we would focus our gaze on Jesus. And that out of that, he would inspire us. We wouldn't have to get up here and manipulate anything. People wouldn't have to hear pitches for Alpha. The Holy Spirit would just move people because you have a sensitivity to God to actually do for God. Because I'm believing just like everyone else here who started this church two years ago, that this church is not just going to be a church that facilitates growth, transfer growth, other Christians from coming from other churches, but genuinely want to reach the lost in our area. Amen? Amen. And it's not going to come from us just telling you what to do and just explaining it through the scriptures, but we need to hear the heart of your God that you worship. We need to hear the why behind everything. So for the next few Sundays, we're going to be going through, in particular, what it looks like to have a heart of worship. You see, a church after God's own heart, week two, is a heart of worship. It is a heart of worship. Worship means to ascribe worth to something. We ascribe worth to anything that we can find worth giving worth to. The fall is coming up. How many times have you been on the red, Dead Sea Scrolls or Red Sea Scrolls? We ascribe worth to the Husker program because we have pride in our state. We ascribe worth to entertainment because it's pleasurable. We ascribe worth to many things, but in this church, as a reminder, in COB, a Jesus-centered and spirit-led church, we will ascribe worth. We will worship God, not just because of what he is doing and what he has done, but because of who he is, his nature and his character. And that's what we're going to be going through for the next couple weeks, because out of who he is, is his doing. Out of who he is flows his blessings. And so we're going to go through the character today of God. The first thing we're going to see is that God is worthy of our worship because he is trustworthy. God is worthy of our worship, ascribing worth to him because he is trustworthy, worthy of our trust. We live in an age of skepticism. Skepticism is high, trust is low. Trust is low, skepticism is high. I go to Pew Studies because Pew Research Group is a Christian organization, and they go through the church, and they go and do surveys for the culture, and they do a great job of actually paying people to take the surveys so they can get an honest amount of surveys filled out. Well, with them being a trusty, a trusty organization, there were two surveys they did on trustworthiness within culture. I'm going to be saying something that you already know. You have a pulse of what's going on around you. But I just have to say it so we get it out of the way because it's just true and it's better that we acknowledge it so we realize just how much we do not trust in our time these days. So the first one was, uh, was a, um, a 9,000 participant study that surveyed marriages, 9,000, and only seven out of the 10 marrieds trusted that their spouses had their best interest in mind. So three out of the 10 did not believe that they were married to someone who had their best interest in mind. Okay, that doesn't sound like much, but when you explode that out to 8 billion people, that's a lot of people. 
Like that's a lot of people that are in marriage covenants where it's supposed to be the closest you are with another human being. And three out of seven on their survey said that they do not trust their spouse to have their best interest at heart. That was 2019. This past May, there was another one that had to do with trusting government. 5,000 participants. And what they concluded was this. Americans trust in government to do the best thing majority of the time has declined from last year already, where it was 24% and went down to 19%. 24 to 19%. On a personal level, we all have trusted people and been burned. And it's jaded how much that we can trust other people. We may have been the person that has not been trustworthy and has burned people. Just circular. Going around trusting people, burning bridges, not being able to trust. Some of us have been in former marriages where trust has been broken and we couldn't stand it. We all experience a level where we do not trust people, whether it's in culture or in your personal life. For me, I'll be honest, ever since vacation, I can't trust myself. On Thursdays, I'm supposed to take out the garbage, and I keep forgetting. Not only that, but it just seems harder to hit the mark of between 5 and 5.30 to come back from work. I can't trust myself when I say I'm going to do something that I will actually do it. And I'm supposed to be one of the most spirit-filled dudes because I'm a pastor in this church. Okay, so I just want to be, let's just put it all out there and say we have trust issues. So with all this mistrust out there and among our own households, there is one in whom we trust, E.O.B. And that's the God described in the Bible. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We, we're going to look at this text and see that the Son of God is going to make it through and persevere a difficult time because of his trust in God the Father. We could have literally went to a thousand different texts because this is filled with people who exercise faith. Because guess what? I would say probably the smallest amount of people have actually seen God physically. So there needs to be faith exercise even to be able to commune with a God whom we don't see but we feel in many ways. But not only that, we could have went through different passages. Abraham ends up having to trust Yahweh when he says, go and be a blessing. I will bless the nations through you and your descendants. Noah had to exercise faith when God told him to build an ark, a boat that never was built before. He never could model it after. He had to trust God that this thing was going to float and that it would save him and his children. There are plenty of ways and different passages we could pick out. But this one in particular we're going to park in because we see that in the deepest, darkest moments of you and in CLB's life cycle, that we can always, always, regardless of circumstances, trust in God. Let's get into the text. Let's get into the text. Mark 14, verse 32. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus is foreseeing his crucifixion, foreseeing that he was going to be flogged and his skin ripped open so that we would have a chance for forgiveness of sins. He sees that he's going to be ridiculed by man and it drives him into prayer. A beautiful picture. 
that the God of the universe, in his most desperate need, goes to the Father, and he goes vertical, and he goes to prayer. And this is what we want to look at in his prayer. Mark 14, Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Jesus does not want this. With clarity, he is expressing, God, deliver me from this. But then, on the spot, he ends up turning and saying, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Your will to be done, not mine. God's will to be done, not ours. He goes with what the Father wants. He prefers the Father's wants over his own wants. He submits to the Father when the Father has a different plan for him. And church, the only reason I can think, the best reason I can think that Jesus ends up going with God's will instead of his own, knowing that he doesn't want to go to the cross to die for former sinners like us, nevertheless, generations that have rejected him yet still because of his sacrifice, is because Jesus trusted God the Father. God the Son trusted God the Father. Some may say, well, why is Jesus tripping? He was God. He knew the redemptive plan. God was fully God and yet still fully man. In his rescue mission, he emptied himself of much divinity. And a part of that was he took on our human nature. Hebrews talks about how we empathize with his weaknesses. So in this moment, we're seeing his humanness. He's doing what any of us would have done in the moment. And that is, can you do that in a different way? This is uncomfortable I don't want to go through this experience. Will you deliver me from this? And in the moment of doubt, we see that Jesus turns because he trusts God. Why? We have to look at the character of God. Jesus understood God the Father in a way that we need to understand God the Father. He trusted God in his moment of need because God is good. There is no ill will within him towards humanity. He has no darkness in him. There is no evil in him. In fact, he doesn't have a good will towards you. He has your best interest in mind. That's how good God is. And we're going to go through these scriptures, and you'll follow along. And there's one thing about reading the scriptures. There's another one with reading and participating. When I get to a place, because we're going to go about six deep in here, just to soak in the word of God and see how good he is. When you see good, I'm going to leave it open for you to say good, so we say it all together, so we participate. Psalm 119, we see that God is good and does only good. You are and do only good. His goodness shows in his compassion. Next verse, Psalm 145, the Lord is to everyone. He shows compassion on all his creation. His goodness is shown in his redemptive work. Psalm 107, give thanks to the Lord for he is His faithful love endures forever. Has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. Someone give an amen. Amen. His goodness is shown in his provision. Acts 14, in the past, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways, but he never left them without evidence of himself and his... For instance... He sends you rain. Praise God two days ago for my lawn because it got some rain. (laughs) And good crops and gives you food and joyful hearts. Every good gift comes from him. Even his discipline is for our good. Hebrews 12. But God's discipline is also always for us. So that we might share in his holiness. 
No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening, but it's painful. But afterward, there is a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained, those who endure, those who learn, those who wait on the Lord in this. He won't withhold any good thing from you, church. Psalm 84, the Lord will withhold no thing from those who do what is right. Everything that God is asking of his church, of you, is because his will and his best interests he keeps in mind. He has your best interests in mind. When we read through the scriptures and we see all of his exhortations and commands to live a life holy unto him because he is holy, he's giving those things because he has our best interests in mind. He knows that true satisfaction and adventure that we're all seeking and a purpose in life is found in knowing your creator and living in a way that honors him. The subjective, audible, inner voice of God in your thought life, it's in there because it's, uh, he is out for your best interest. When he is talking to your conscience at work, when he is telling you not to do something, when he is telling you to do something that is so subjective in your thought life, but yet is pure and will honor God, it's for our best interest. He just doesn't talk to waste words. That's the beautiful thing about God. He says what he means, and he means what he says. God is good. He withholds no good thing. An example of this, I see in my bride. And I bring up my bride pretty often. I think you married couples know it's a thing when you're married. You end up becoming very aware of your weaknesses. And so I see God's goodness and how I even met my bride. And just for context, it's 2010. I grew up with a, um, a distorted view of sexuality. And so... Uh, monogamy and commitment was not high growing up in a household where I was not taught that. And so I become a Christian in 2007. I get to my senior year in 2010. And one of the last things that I did in trusting God was trusting him with my purity, my physical purity, was trusting him with companionship, was trusting him with dating. And so at the heart of it, I genuinely did not trust, although I knew and surrendered other areas of my life, I did not trust that God had his best interest for me when I was reading about physical purity, when I was reading about pursuing another woman who uh, loved God, a woman described in Proverbs 31, because I thought to myself, well, I'm lonely right now, God, and there aren't many women out there or college-age women out there that I can find who was described in this way, so how could you have my best interest at heart? And so it was one of the last things that I gave up, but by God's grace, and this is where godly sorrow brings us to true repentance, I got so sick of compromising that I felt so gross. And it's not a condemnation. Church, the difference we need to discern in our congregation, there is condemnation and then there's conviction. Conviction is from the Holy Spirit and it causes you to pursue holiness and pursue God. Condemnation will put you into shame and guilt. And we need to discern as a church. So I'm there at the cusp of discerning, is this condemnation? I feel terrible. But the Holy Spirit told me, no, son, you're better than this. In Christ, you are a different creation. Live up to what I've bought you for. And so I repented. I put all those things aside. And within a week, I met Danny. I met my bride of 10 years. And those are things that you can't write, right? Like, 
If you're single in the room, that may not be your story, may never be your story, but in other areas of your life, God will bless your obedience. God wants to bless the obedience of his children. He wants to encourage you and send you out being like, continue on in your good doing, in your well-doing. Go and be a blessing. And God will bless us as we seek to obey him. Not only that, but another thing is, you'll see up here, James 1, 17. If you're ever wondering, man, with all the changing dynamics from the time that you were 70, and the, <laughs> you were born in the 70s all the way till now, so many things have changed, God's goodness will never change. Like, there was a time where we all were unconscious and we didn't live. And God's goodness was evident through the people who lived before us and the people who lived before them, all the way leading back to those who wrote the scriptures. Before we were here and showed up on the scene, God was God and he was still good and he's always going to be. James 1 reads, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down from us from God the Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. If you know that from any call and response churches, feel free to say it. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Jesus understand, understood this about his father. And because of that, he trusted him in his moment of need with control. And we should too. But if we're honest, knowing God, it should, God is good, it should be enough reason for us to trust him. But in our humanness and in our fleshliness, we, it's, it's still difficult. And I'm grateful that in the text even, that Jesus shows us there's even another reason on top of God being good that warrants our trust of him. Look with me, Mark 14, Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. In his most desperate need, Jesus calls his father Abba. Abba, Father. It means dear father. It's in term of endearment. It's a term of intimacy. And this is what Mark wants us to, guess, to get when he included this in his account of Gethsemane. Jesus in that moment knew that God wasn't far off in the distance, but he was intimately connected to him. That he was close with Jesus in his time of need. That he was there among him as he, he was agonizing. He's not far removed from all of our troubles in life and even in the great times in our life. But he cares so much about every single detail. New Testament scholar C.F.D. Mao writes, The intimate word conveys a casual, sort, not a casual sort of familiarity, but the deepest, most trustful reverence. Trust God not just because he good, although he's good, although that would warrant it, but because he cares deeply for you. Not just for this church, but for you. There are over 8 billion people on this planet, and he cares uniquely about us individually. He knew the time that you woke up. He knew the hairs on your head. He knew when you would be born. He knew how your parents would meet. He knew what you would do for a living. He knew the neglect of us towards him. He knew the moments of worship we would give over to him. He knows every detail of our life because he deeply cares. First Peter 5, 7 reads, Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. He cares about you. Psalm 34 reads, 
Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. I can come up here and I could preach paint off the wall and say, God is good. And the church says, yes and amen. And all the time, all the time, God is good. And I could say, God cares deeply for you. And people say, yes and amen. And we can walk out of this Sunday. And we, our trust level of God was here before we came in. And it's staying here. Because when we leave and we encounter the troubles, it's easy to resort to where we were before. Because some of the issue is we truly haven't tasted and seen the goodness of God. It's either we haven't tasted and seen the goodness of God or we're not recounting it and remembering it. It's amazing how much spirit-filled worship and adoration you will have for God when we recount the goodness of God in our lives. And it is an experiential thing. It's something that you may even have to pray into. But I'm looking at Psalm 83 and I'm looking at the type of person it describes and I want that. I want the joy of the Lord in my life. And it has to be experienced through the goodness of God. And God's saints from generation to generation, by his perseverant spirit being upon them, they have gotten this. They have, although it's been inconvenient and difficult, ran to Romans 8 verse 28. And they have made themselves believe it, despite how they felt. And it is this, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Church, who cares for God? Who cares for you more than God? No one does. Who has your best interests more than God does? No one does. Who will never let you down? God won't. I switched that up on you. <laughs> if we cannot trust God... Who can we trust? If we can't trust God, genuinely, who can we trust? The church, this church among you, you may have already found out, are made up of humans. We will let you down. Your spouse will let you down. Your children will let you down. People who you love will let you down. The workplace, the affirmations, the pride, the money, the getting to the next area in your life. It will all let you down and it is all fleeting. But there's one person who will never let us down. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob kept his faithfulness. The God in this text who stuck to the Father's will and went to the cross is the one who we can trust. His name is Jesus. And by his spirit, we can trust him through every single season. God has never let us let humanity down in the past, and he won't do it from here on. God is trustworthy in every single season. Church, do we know how important it is that God cares for our trust? Do we know how much God cares for trust and our trust in him? It says in the word of God that it's impossible to please God without it. Whether it's us first coming to salvation and that saving faith and exercising it, in the finished work of Christ, or whether it's post-conversion in our daily decision-making. It's impossible to please God without faith. A church after God's own heart is a church that trusts him. A church, a person, this congregation after God's own heart is a people, a person, a body locally that trusts him. My question is, what are the issues in our lives that we have to contemplate now that we're not trusting him in.
Because sitting through a sermon and hearing it is one thing, but then the hard work of actually receiving the word and going to God and asking and, and then entrusting him with the situation is a totally different matter. We're going to go through communion. We're going to sing songs of worship. I'm going to pray right now. And I'm going to encourage you, if it be but one thing, as the band comes up right now, if it be but one thing, what is God asking you to trust him in? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being good. You say that you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. As a congregation, God, would this be true of us? Would we trust in you always because you are our eternal rock? In Jesus' name, amen.